Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for New Year's Eve, Saturday, December 31st, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Trump's tax returns are officially released. Andrew Tate and his brother are arrested in Romania. Belarus downs an air defense missile over its territory. Ten oil workers are killed in Syria. Bolivia's opposition leader is arrested on terrorism charges. Myanmar's Aung San Suu Kyi is jailed for seven more years. Indonesia tightens its palm oil exports. The FDA is accused of breaking its rules on an Alzheimer's drug. The trial for a China-made COVID antiviral pill is finished. And Hershey's is sued over metals in its dark chocolate. In our top story, Donald Trump's tax returns are released. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Time, BBC News, Reuters, Associated Press, and Wall Street Journal. Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee officially released six years' worth of former President Donald Trump's tax returns on Friday following a party-line vote on the matter last week. The returns stretch from 2015 to 2020, covering Trump's taxes during his candidacy and time in office. He broke tradition by being the first president since Nixon not to release his tax returns to the public, leading to a legal battle starting once Democrats took the House in 2019. The legal conflict was only settled last month after the Supreme Court ruled against the former president's request to keep the tax returns private. The returns, which include redactions of sensitive information such as Social Security and bank account numbers, are nearly 6,000 pages long with over 2,700 pages of individual returns for Trump and his wife, Melania Trump, as well as more than 3,000 pages for Trump's business entities. Within the six-year time span, the returns show Trump paid a total of $4.4 million in taxes after an adjusted gross income of negative $53.2 million. Reasons for this beyond the negative income included deductions from cash charitable donations and alternative fuel tax credits. Meanwhile, some have raised concerns over the Internal Revenue Service's auditing of Trump's taxes during his presidency, with the report alleging that the administration only began examining his 2016 taxes in 2019. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts on this story. And let's begin with a Democratic narrative spin from the Los Angeles Times. The release of the returns is the final act in a saga that Trump's incessant fighting has dragged out for years. Much of the information Trump sought to keep private became public irrespectively, and the reality is that for all of his claims of being a great businessman, his companies have been losing millions for years. This release remains a blow to the former president. And Town Hall gives us a pro-Trump narrative. To no one's surprise, the big tax return release was just an anticlimactic witch hunt, which it did show is that while he was focused on being president, Trump's companies did take a financial dive which is why he paid very little in income tax. This was nothing more than a political farce that has opened the door to future harassment. And from time to time, we have nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says, there's a 15% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Andrew Tate and his brother are arrested in Romania. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CNN, Reuters, BBC News, and Newsweek. Romanian police detained former professional kickboxer and internet celebrity Andrew Tate, along with his brother Tristan and two other suspects, on Thursday night. Romanian authorities served search warrants to five homes and detained four suspects as part of an organized human trafficking and rape investigation. Authorities did not name the detainees, with Tate's lawyer saying he was not arrested. He was detained for 24 hours. A Bucharest court on Friday agreed to extend Tate's detention by 30 days. However, following a request from prosecutors from the Anti-Organized Crime Unit, who added that the Tate brothers have been under investigation since April. Romania's Directorate for Investigating Organized Crime and Terrorism stated that two British citizens and two Romanians are the targets of the investigation. The Directorate identified six victims who say they were sexually exploited by the pair, who allegedly misrepresented their romantic interest in the victims. This comes in the wake of a recent social spat between Tate and climate activist Greta Thunberg, with viral posts claiming a pizza box shown in Tate's response video to Thunberg revealed he was still located in Romania. Authorities say the video was absolutely not a key piece of evidence in locating Tate. Tate, a controversial social media influencer, previously told Tucker Carlson on Fox News that he was deplatformed by technology companies because he had large swaths of the population agreeing to the very traditional masculine values. Thank you, Scott. A couple of spins for this story, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative, and it's being provided by The Daily Beast. Getting humiliated by Greta Thunberg seems to be the least of Andrew Tate's concerns now that he's been arrested on human trafficking and rape charges. Tate has made countless vile comments about women, so it should not be surprising that he could engage in such horrendous abuse. Tate is unquestioningly a bad actor, and his criminal activity needs to be investigated. And Daily Wire brings us the establishment critical narrative. The circumstances of Tate's arrest are suspicious. He's faced similar charges before which the controversial social media influencer said was swatting and related to his accumulation of wealth, including cryptocurrency. The inane pizza box conspiracy theory is already debunked, and forthcoming information could shed light on Tate's situation. We continue our coverage of the Ukraine conflict, looking at day 310, and Belarus says it downed a Ukrainian air defense missile. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Pravda, Ukraine Forum, and Donetsk News Agency. Following the latest barrage of Russian missiles fired on Ukraine on Thursday, Belarus said it shot down a Ukrainian S-300 air defense missile near the village of Harbacha in the Brest region, roughly 9 miles or 15 kilometers from the border of Ukraine. Ukraine's ambassador to Belarus was summoned to the foreign ministry in Minsk as a result of the incident. Ministry spokesman Anatoly Glaz said, quote, The Belarusian side views this incident as extremely serious. He continued saying, We demanded that the Ukrainian side conduct a thorough investigation and called for Ukraine to, quote, hold those responsible to account. Glaz also stated that the neighboring countries should seek to stop an incident like this from happening again. In response, Ukraine's defense ministry said, The Ukrainian side, reserving the unconditional right to the defense and protection of its own sky, at the same time is ready to conduct an objective investigation in Ukraine. It added that it did not rule out a deliberate provocation in which Russia launched its cruise missiles on a path that would be intercepted over Belarusian territory. Meanwhile, Russia launched fresh attacks overnight and on Friday morning. 
Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down all 16 drones deployed by Russia, with Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko adding that two of the drones were destroyed over the capital, while another five were shot down in the wider Kyiv region. However, officials said one of the downed drones partially destroyed an administrative building and damaged the windows of a nearby residence in the Holosivsky district. Ukrainian officials said that during those attacks in the last 24 hours, three civilians were killed and two more were injured in the Kharkiv region. One civilian was killed and another was injured in the Donetsk region. And one civilian was killed in the Kherson region. One civilian was also injured in the Ivano-Frankivsk region. Meanwhile, in Ukrainian attacks for the same time period, pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic reported that one civilian was killed and 10 more were injured in the region. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have some narrative spins on this story, starting with Narrative A from Belta. The firing of an air defense missile into Belarus is a very serious incident that risks prompting an international escalation of the conflict. Ukraine needs to conduct a thorough review to prevent this type of potentially inflammatory event from occurring again. Narrative B coming from Politico. The Kremlin is desperate to involve Belarus in its war of aggression in Ukraine. As such, it cannot be ruled out that Russia deliberately laid a route for one of its missiles that would lead to it being intercepted over the territory of the country. And Narrative C comes from Reuters. The S-300 is a Soviet-era weapon used by both Russia and Ukraine. It's notoriously unreliable and is known to miss targets and go astray. Although undesirable, there's nothing strange or suspicious about this incident. And finally for this story, a nerd narrative is being provided by Metaculus. There's a 1% chance that Russian or Belarusian troops will cross the land border between Belarus and either the Volyn or Rivni oblasts by 2023. An attack in eastern Syria kills 10 oil workers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, BBC News, and Al-Shark Al-Alsat. According to state news agency Sana'a, an attack on three buses in Syria's eastern Deir Esor province on Friday killed at least 10 Al-Time oil field workers and left two injured. No group immediately claimed responsibility for the attack, but the UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights accused members of the Islamic State of being behind it. The same day, U.S.-backed Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, said they arrested 52 IS militants during raids in the north, reportedly thwarting an alleged planned New Year's Eve attack. This comes a day after the SDF announced Operation Al Jazeera Thunderbolt, an offensive against IS to eliminate its fighters from the Al-Hol and Tal-Hamis areas. Around 900 U.S. troops in Syria reportedly support the SDF's fight against IS, and on Thursday, the U.S. Central Command said it had operated 313 operations against IS in Syria and Iraq this year. Friday's attack on oil field workers is the latest violence in Syria's catastrophic 11-year-old civil war. Around 500,000 people have died in the conflict, and millions more have been forced to flee their homes. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin for this story is an establishment critical narrative coming from Cato Institute. The U.S.'s ongoing interference in oil-rich Syria continues to exacerbate problems in the Middle East and raise questions about its true motives. Washington politicians and their defense contract donors seemingly love to prolong wars, but there's no rational reason to stay in Syria at this point. Only if the U.S. and its partners leave Syria will the country be able to find lasting peace again. And the United States Institute of Peace brings us the pro-establishment narrative. 
While IS may not be perceived as the grave threat it was in the past decade, largely thanks to U.S. efforts, it's still a dangerous terror organization whose actions have and will continue to destroy the lives of thousands. Syria has been in disarray since the start of its civil war, and its regime cannot resolve the problems of the region alone. U.S.-led global action is required to bring stability and human rights to Syria. Turning our attention to Bolivia, where an opposition leader has been arrested on terrorism charges. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by France 24, Associated Press, BBC News, Guardian, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. Luis Fernando Camacho, right-wing governor and former presidential candidate, was arrested on terrorism charges on Wednesday. He was sentenced to four months of pre-trial detention by a Bolivian judge on Friday. The charges stem from Camacho's role in the 2019 protests that led to the resignation of then-president Evo Morales, which prosecutors claim constituted a coup. Several political and military leaders are facing similar charges, including the interim president, Janine Añez, who was installed after Morales resigned and is currently facing a 10-year sentence. Morales praised the arrest, stating that Camacho will, quote, answer for the robberies, persecutions, arrests, and massacres of the de facto government, while Camacho's office alleged he was brutally kidnapped on charges lacking truth and credibility. The news sparked protests in Camacho's home state of Santa Cruz with a powerful committee calling for a 24-hour civic strike in support of the governor. The unrest in 2019 saw the deaths of 37 people after allegations of fraud against Morales' movement towards socialism, or MAS party, which returned to power in a 2020 election helmed by incumbent President Luis Arce. The MAS has pledged to prosecute those responsible for the abuses that occurred during the power struggle. The United States Department of State and the United Nations both issued statements urging nonviolence as the situation develops in Bolivia. An establishment critical narrative coming from Telegraph. Camacho is an outspoken critic of the MAS regime, and this is a blatant act of retaliation against him and his allies. Unable to cope with his widespread popularity in one of Bolivia's fastest-growing regions, the regime has resorted to dictatorial tactics by fabricating these charges. This is a dark day for democracy, as a popular incumbent governor is arrested for opposing the ruling government. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story coming from the People's Dispatch. Camacho was responsible for a violent far-right coup against the democratically elected government. The allegations of fraud are dubious at best, and the power grab led to death and destruction across Bolivia. The government is seeking justice for the victims of this violence through the legal system, even at the risk of violence from Camacho's many vocal supporters. And in Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi is jailed for seven more years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Times, Sky News, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and NBC News. The deposed leader of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, has been sentenced to a further seven years in prison by the country's governing military junta. The latest verdict on charges of corruption means the 77-year-old faces a total of 33 years in prison. According to an anonymous source familiar with the trial, Suu Kyi was found guilty of five counts of corruption, specifically relating to the lease and use of a helicopter while she was the de facto leader of Myanmar. Nobel Peace Laureate Suu Kyi was removed as Myanmar's state counselor in February of 2021 at the start of a military coup. She has since faced imprisonment and solitary confinement and has been charged with accepting bribes and other kinds of corruption. 
Friday's verdict resulted from allegations that the former state counselor had neglected to follow financial regulations when she allowed Win Mott I, a cabinet member in Sue Key's government, to hire, buy, and maintain the helicopter. It saw Myanmar's courts conclude the various cases charged against Suu Kyi. Granting the international community access to Suu Kyi has long been a key demand among critics of Myanmar's military regime. Statistics from an NGO called Assistance Association for Political Prisoners have said security forces have so far killed at least 2,685 civilians and arrested 16,651 since the coup. Thank you, Scott. This story has generated two different spins, and the first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from PEN America. This was a show trial aimed at silencing Aung San Suu Kyi and removing her from the political landscape. The U.S.'s targeted sanctions of the military junta, however, will help support those working towards the shoring up of democracy and Myanmar. Under Biden's leadership, the U.S. has clearly signaled its solidarity with the people of Myanmar and its willingness to hold the nation's military accountable for countless human rights violations. Contrast that with this establishment-critical narrative from Bloomberg. The U.S. is continuing to fail to take an effective stance against human rights abuses in Myanmar. American officials only throw humanitarian crumbs towards populations who lack proxy value, while giving billions to big-ticket election-friendly issues like the Russia-Ukraine war. Issues affecting Europe remain a priority as 55 million people in Myanmar struggle to stay alive and eke out an existence under an unforgiving dictatorship. Scott, I know you really feel the pain of that uh, cabinet member in the Suki's government that has to uh, maintain that helicopter. Uh, <laughs> I, I know that you've got, you know, some struggles with that as well. It, well, it I mean... Yeah, I mean, they've put a lot of restrictions on where helipads can be in Manhattan now. It's, you know, it's not what it's cracked up to be anymore. It's just not worth, you know, it's a lot. Of, it's, believe me, uh, uh, it's money, mo, money, mo problems. Thank you. News from Indonesia as they plan to tighten palm oil exports. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Nikkei, Bloomberg, AgriCensus, and Finance. Indonesia on Friday announced it was revising its domestic market obligation or DMO policy and will cut the amount of palm oil producers can export to six times the domestic sales volume. That's down from the current eight times starting January 1st. The world's biggest palm oil producer explained it was tightening its export rules to ensure sufficient domestic supply of the commodity, particularly during Ramadan, which the country will celebrate in March. The preventative measure, which allows fewer shipments overseas for every ton sold domestically, is reportedly to address the potential increase in domestic cooking oil demand that often accompanies Ramadan for the first quarter of 2023 and, quote, will be evaluated periodically. As Malaysia is the world's second biggest exporter of palm oil, the announcement saw the country's palm oil futures jump more than 2% on Friday and hit their highest level in a month at $950 per ton. Indonesia last April banned palm oil export, which shook global markets and sent vegetable oil prices spiraling. The ban was later lifted in May. Meanwhile, experts fear the sudden change in palm oil export policy may restrict supply, just as Indonesia plans to increase the mandatory palm oil component in biofuels to 35% starting February 1st. Thanks, Eric, for the facts on that story. We have an establishment-critical narrative from The Guardian. 
This move will not only hurt household economics globally, but also reduce supplies of the world's most used cooking oils, thus creating additional upward pressure for food prices well into 2023. The Indonesian government must rethink the policy change as it strains global food insecurity and poses significant risks to palm fruit farmers' livelihoods. Thank you, Scott. Business Recorder gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Indonesia must first address food security issues domestically before it shifts its focus globally. The move may be harsh, but it's necessary to stabilize domestic prices of palm oil, considering the festive season is bound to affect the demand and supply equation. Furthermore, Malaysia will be able to pick up some of the export slack while Indonesia enforces this temporary change in regulation. And the Audubon Society brings us a cynical narrative. Continuous use of palm oil in food and biofuels will have a catastrophic impact on the planet. Apart from making Indonesia a primary emitter of carbon emissions, palm oil plantations have already resulted in industrial-scale deforestation, threatening several plant and animal species. Though reducing the dependency on Indonesia's palm markets may be challenging, the world must look for an alternative no matter the cost. It seems like the, the switching different oils into fuels and things like that, like ethanol and this palm oil thing, feels often like just robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? Yeah, really. And, you know, I've tried palm oil. It seems to burn a little hotter in my car than just regular, you know, synthetic. Oh, no. I, the yeah, Audi. Yep. The Audi is not liking the palm oil. So I'm going to switch back to full synthetic. Good idea. Yeah. yeah. Better safe than sorry. Absolutely. A new report claims the FDA broke its rules on an Alzheimer's drug. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC News, Reuters, Jerusalem Post, and Patch. According to a Thursday report by the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reform and House Committee on Energy and Commerce, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approval process for Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, Alduhelm, was rife with irregularities, and its interactions with the companies were atypical. The investigation followed the FDA's decision to approve the drug in 2021, despite objections from its panel of outside advisors who believed the data didn't prove benefits for patients. It was authorized on evidence that it could reduce brain plaques, a likely contributor to the disease, rather than its ability to slow the progression of Alzheimer's. After the entire advisory panel voted not to approve Aduhelm, the FDA decided to switch from the traditional approval process and approve the drug through the accelerated process, typically used for rare diseases or those with small patient pools. The report adds that after an independent report showed the drug's inability to slow cognitive and functional impairment, Cambridge Mass-based Biogen canceled its clinical trials in March of 2019. The FDA still approved it, along with its price of $56,000 per year. Other irregularities claimed in the report include that FDA staff and Biogen held at least 115 meetings, calls, and email exchanges over 12 months, beginning in July of 2019 though the agency didn't keep a clear record of the interactions. The report claims 66 calls and emails were not recorded. Both Biogen and the FDA have stated they believe their interactions were appropriate, though the agency has already begun implementing some of the report's recommendations. These include ensuring all interactions with drug companies are recorded and updating the industry guidance for developing and reviewing Alzheimer's drugs. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We look at a few of the spins, and the first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Johns Hopkins University. While rare, this isn't the first time the FDA has deviated from its advisory committee's recommendation. The FDA, understanding the public attention this drug approval would get, has rightly stood by its reasoning, 
including the life-threatening nature of Alzheimer's, its unmet need for treatment, and the evidence that the drug reduces brain plaques. As with all approved drugs, the FDA has closely monitored its success as it entered the market. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the New York Times. This report is not surprising in the slightest, as the FDA has been engaged in blatant drug approval corruption for a long time. While this may not be widely known, large pharmaceutical companies literally fund the FDA's drug review studies in what's known as its user fee program, leading to a never-ending cycle of regulatory capture. More medical news coming from China, as a China-made COVID antiviral pill completes its trial. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, South China Morning Post, and U.S. News & World Report. In a Phase 3 trial conducted in China, a new antiviral pill for the treatment of COVID was found to be as effective as Paxlovid against mild to moderate infection in people determined to be at high risk of severe disease. According to a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine on Wednesday, patients who took the pill, known as VV116, recovered on average one day faster for a total of four days when compared to those who took Paxlovid. The researchers also found a lower incidence of adverse effects with the VV116 group compared to the Paxlovid group. The efficacy of VV116 in reducing severe symptoms, hospitalization, or death among high-risk, unvaccinated individuals has not yet been determined. A standard phase 3 drug trial typically includes as many as 3,000 people, though the Paxlovid late-stage trial had 2,200 participants. The VV116 trial was significantly less, with only 380 people taking the medication for five days, with the similarly-sized group taking Paxlovid instead. Thanks, Eric. We have two contrasting narratives on this story. Narrative A comes from Channel News Asia. China is facing a staggering COVID surge with the rollback of its zero-COVID policy. As cases and deaths increase, this new antiviral drug will be very helpful, especially as the country experiences a shortage of Paxlovid and other COVID-specific medications. And narrative B coming from Stat News. While VV116 may seem like a promising alternative to Paxlovid, it has not been studied enough. The clinical trials involved too small of a control group, and the results were not clear enough for many authorities and regulators to want to approve or manufacture the drug. It's too early to tell if the new treatment will be able to help China's roiling COVID surge. And our final story, Hershey is sued for metals in dark chocolate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, BBC News, Consumer Reports, and NPR Online News. Hershey Company is being sued by a consumer accusing the confectionery giant of selling dark chocolate that contains harmful levels of lead and cadmium. New York resident Christopher Lazazaro filed a proposed class action lawsuit against Hershey in a central Islip, New York federal court. Lazazaro claims the company misled consumers by failing to disclose the quantities of lead and cadmium metals in three of their dark chocolate bars. The lawsuit specifically focuses on Hershey's Special Dark Bar, Lily's 70% Bar, and Lily's 85% Bar, which were high in either lead, cadmium, or both. The suit also refers to a consumer report study that tested chocolate bars' metal levels. The report found that 23 out of 28 dark chocolate bars studied contained metal levels that public health authorities consider harmful. Hershey's, its subsidiary Lily's, as well as Theo and Trader Joe's, were notable brands with especially elevated levels. While the FDA doesn't have a stringent recommendation for metal intake, California does thanks to a settlement 
between the National Confectioners Association and the advocacy group As You Sew. The association says manufacturers like Hershey are adhering to the settlement. Lazanzaro's suit is seeking at least $5 million from Hershey for its deceptive advertising and marketing practices. Thank you, Scott, for the facts and two spins coming from this story, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative being provided by CandyUSA.com. Food safety and product quality are the highest priorities for Hershey and other members of the National Confectioners Association. Hershey's chocolates are made in strict compliance with the association's California Proposition 65 settlement, which establishes strict requirements for lead and cadmium levels. The products in question are well below any dangerous level and are safe to enjoy. And we have an establishment critical narrative from Food Safety News. Heavy metals such as lead and cadmium are extremely dangerous to consume, and only one ounce of Hershey's dark chocolate is well above a safe level. These metals pose a threat to children and can cause severe developmental issues. Chocolate companies must be held responsible and ensure their customers know what they're eating. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner. And from all of us here at Improve the News, Happy New Year. Thanks for listening, everybody.